This is Sex Ed Debunked, a cross-generational podcast hosted by mother-daughter duo, Christine and Channing Curley, where we talk about all the things you learned or didn't learn in sex ed and where it all went wrong. From the abstinence curriculum to the monogamy myth and the vast spectrum of rainbow representation, we'll get real about sex positivity and catch you up on everything from proper anatomy to the holistic benefits of a great sex life. Tune in to Sex Ed Debunked wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us at Sex Ed Debunked on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed Debunked, a podcast about sex ed for life, sex positivity, and the cross-generational sex appeal of Enrique Iglesias. Ooh, Ooh, uh, what a man, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. We love Mm him. Anyway, we're your hosts, Christine and Shannon Curley. (laughs) We digress. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. Today, we'll be talking about the myth that either you're turned on or you're not, or as I like to say, the myth of spontaneous desire. Yeah, but the myth of spontaneous desire sounds like a romantic novel with like Fabio on the cover. Exactly. That's <laughs> why that it's a myth. Exactly? Okay. That's why it's a myth. <laughs> all right. Because all of Fabio's no- novels are myths. Um, as a reminder, last episode, we talked about asking for what you want and we debunked the myth that asking for what you want isn't sexy. It's actually really sexy to ask for what you want and much sexier than not having to, than having to play a guessing game. So true. Well, today's myth is based on two fundamental misconceptions about sex. The first one, that being sexually aroused or feeling sexual desire is supposed to be automatic or spontaneous. The second part of that myth is that if you do not experience spontaneous arousal or desire, you're somehow broken or need fixing. So this is sort of combating the myth that I think is really hyper present in media, especially where it's like it's that rip off your clothes sex um, that that is somehow indicative of real desire. Like if you're not immediately jumping each other's bones as soon as you see each other, then like let's just call the whole thing off. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it truly is a myth because it's based on this whole misperception that we're always ready for sex. We're always ready. And if someone's hot and attractive. Um, we're supposed to be ready. And if we're not, there's something wrong with us. So I want to start, start for a minute. We're going to go back into academia to talk a little bit about these models. Um, so the first part of the myth is that we're supposed to have spontaneous desire. And part of that started back in the day. Some of you may be familiar with Masters and Johnson. Um, there was a show, I think it was Netflix or Showtime called Masters of Sex. And what Masters and Johnson did, and this was actually a man and a woman team, which was very unusual for the time, um, they brought a number of participants into the lab and they actually measured and tracked their sexual arousal. Part of the flaw, obviously, is people who go to a sexual arousal study are people who tend to have spontaneous arousal anyway. But what they figured out was that they wanted to explain the sexual response for both men and women. So first flaw, Shannon? (laughs) That it's only looking at cis men and women. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And also assuming that all of us are the same in our desire. Yeah. So wait, I want to pause real quick because what you just said threw up a flag for me. So saying that by participating, they're already predisposed to spontaneous desire. Is that true? Well, what happens oftentimes in studies about sexuality is that when they do an open recruitment, like in a class back then, it was it was in the you know 60s and 70s, they do a classified ad. And then what you get is people who are interested in sex. So you're getting a population that's already predisposed to be very sex positive and sexually open. 
But I have to push back because our myth is that spontaneous desire. So can't you be interested in sex and be sex positive without experiencing spontaneous desire? Yes. But the foundation for this belief that we're supposed to have spontaneous desire started with the Masters and Johnson research. And that's where there's the flaw because when they're researching, they were, they were assuming that what they found in their study was going to be generalized to everyone even though their study participants were kind of very sexual people to begin with. Okay, so tell me more about the study because I think it'll make more sense when you talk about the actual results. Yeah, so what they did is they brought people in the lab and they they measured their body's responses to sexual stimuli. Mm -hmm. And what they came up with was they came up with four phases. And what they assumed that was really a flaw is that our arousal is always comes in a straight line. And I don't know anything that we do in life that's completely linear without, mm -hmm. without taking sidetracks here or backtracking or going in circles. But the model that they developed is a four-phase model. Mm -hmm. And what they assumed was first phase is excitation. So you're going to get sexual stimuli and you're going to be excited. Mm-hmm. Second phase is that is what they call plateau. So when you're at that level of excitement, it's kind of that buzzy energy feeling. Third phase, orgasm. Mm -hmm. Fourth phase, resolution. Resolution. And what this they, is like the, the story narrative model of like rising action. Exactly. Climax. Right? <laughs> and this is part of the issue, right? Is we're, we're, we're one, assuming that we all, we all experience our sexual arousal and our sexual response the same way. And also it, it's very male-oriented because of this resolution phase. Because obviously women ex often experience multiple orgasms. We right. don't need a resolution. But we also, at the front end, don't experience excitement and desire in the same way. Nevertheless, Masters and Johnson did a really good thing because they at least acknowledged that there is a pattern of response that's out there. Mm -hmm. Their flaw was that they assumed it was the only pattern. Right. So the real flaw uh, in terms of this myth of you always have to be turned on and you often have to have spontaneous desire is there's the other things in life that get in the way, right, Shannon? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that makes sense. Um, there's all these other, you know, <laughs> factors of stress, of, you know, mental and physical drain, of being overwhelmed, of being tired. It's not easy to just be on, even when we think about, you know, having an off day, right? Yeah. People have off days or they're just, you know, in an off mood or whatever. And I think, you know, sex is such a highly personal act and it does require a lot of energy. It requires emotional energy. It requires mental energy. It requires physical energy, obviously. So to expect that someone could be on all the time in that capacity isn't realistic with the reality of life. And so what kind of happened after Masters and Johnson is that there became this feeling that if you didn't have an experience, desire, and arousal in that way, there was something not quite right with you, which what led to all of this medicalization around sex and, and low arousal, low desire, all of those things. So in the early 1990s at the Kinsey Institute, two directors, two researchers at the Kinsey Institute came up with a different model. And that's really part of a really important part of what I want to talk about today is this different model called the dual control model. 
Um, it started at the Kinsey Institute. It's kind of been made a bit more popular by Emily Nagoski, who's who has a TED Talk, and we'll um, link to that after this episode. But what what they recognized is that our brains do not work in one mode. Mm-hmm. There's two modes. One is excitation. The other is inhibition. And those are working at the same time in our brains. So to give you kind of a visual image, we have accelerators. If you think of a car, right? You have an accelerators. You have things that turn you on around the world. Uh, smells, sounds, hot body nearby. Those <laughs> things are your accelerators and they exist and they and they work. But you also have, each one of us have brakes. And the brakes could be stress. It could be a deadline. It could be, you know, waking up just not feeling quite right. It could be kids. It could be a million things. It could be context. And those brakes and those accelerators are working at the same time. And that interplay, so if you think about a car, no matter how much you put on the accelerator, if that emergency brake is still on, is that car going to go? Nope. Nope, not at all. And that's how our sexual response works. If the brakes are on, the car won't go. And we allow that for so many other things that are not sexual, right? Like you cannot be in the mood for other things or, you know, like for me, it's like sometimes I don't want to go to my soccer game at nine o'clock at night because I'm tired and I had a long day and I know that I'm not going to have the energy to do it. And that's acceptable. But for some reason, there's, oh, I think because this is such a, you know, hyper personal and intimate topic, but with sex, it seems to be that it's more of a quote unquote problem that you think there's something wrong with yourself. You don't think there's anything wrong with yourself when you're tired and don't want to go to soccer or when you order takeout instead of cooking dinner because exactly. you had a long day. But there's something about it that because it's a vulnerable and intimate and personal experience, I think people have the tendency to say, well, there's something wrong with me if I can't just get excited, if I can't just be turned on. I love my partner or I know this thing usually works for me. I know that, you know, watching porn. I know that doing whatever usually gets me going, but it's not. Is there something wrong with me? And the answer is no, because just like with anything else in your life, you can have that sort of cognitive dissonance between I'd like to be into this right now, but I'm just not because there's a hundred other things that I'm thinking about. And, and, and Shannon, you hit the nail on the head is that we have to be kind to ourselves around sexual desire as well as all the other things we're learning to be kind and compassionate with ourselves about. And much like any other learning about ourselves, learning about our sexuality and learning what our breaks are Mm -hmm. makes us feel more compassionate to ourselves and also to our partner. So if you have a, a partner telling them what your breaks are, so maybe, maybe the stress is I might be getting a little personal here, but coming home to a cluttered house, (laughs) even though I'm away for four days, you know, going to school at UConn and I should have spontaneous desire the minute I walk in the door to to want to hug and kiss and, and touch and be close with my husband. If I walk in the door and there's dishes in the sink and there's a hockey bag on the floor, that spontaneous desire is gone. This is personal. (laughs) But that's a break. And so having that discussion to say, hey, can you make sure those breaks aren't there? Even so much as I'm getting on the phone saying, all right, I'm leaving now. I'll be home in an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we have a little chore play here and make sure that the house is clean? (laughs) And it goes a long way because it's, it's a matter of understanding that that's my break. And I'm not going to judge myself that that's my break. I shouldn't, I don't want to feel like, well, I, I should really have spontaneous desire because we've been away for four days. 
No, that's my break. It's legitimate. Take it away, and then my accelerator can work. So what's the opposite of spontaneous desire, or is there, a more, is there a more realistic version of desire? Well, the realistic version of desire is called responsive desire. And responsive desire gets a bad rap. And in fact, really only 15% or so of us have spontaneous desire. Responsive desire is, is what happens when we ease that break slowly. And we ease it. And maybe maybe we've had a stressed out day. So you start with easing the break by let's just hold hands. This is kind of like shifting. It is. <laughs> you got to slowly release the break while you push down the clutch and then you can shift gears. And you're shifting gears from letting go of the brakes and letting the accelerator do its thing. Letting the turn-ons that are in your life be able to take more prominence and understanding that this is good. Responsive desire is good. Responsive desire to somebody touching, maybe a compliment. Maybe you walk in the door and your partner says, whoa, you look fantastic today. That starts easing up the break, right? Maybe if you felt like crap all day, but your partner's like, oh, no, you look fa fabulous. Or, you know what, I just want to hug you. Yeah. And those things ease the break and then allows those accelerators to say, hmm, this is feeling good. Well, that's funny because in a little in a, in a slight way, it feels like accelerator is almost a misnomer because it doesn't have to be quickly. It's a slow acceleration. Like sometimes it's building up to the point where you're able to feel that, you know, release and feel like, OK, deep breath, you know, big sigh of relief. Now I can open myself up to this because all of these other breaks are out of the way or all these other blockages are out of the way. And the other sigh of relief is knowing that it's okay to be responsive and to slowly heat up mm -hmm. and to slowly get in the mood, to, to throw away that myth that if you're not hot and heavy in an instant, there's something wrong and there's something wrong with, oh my gosh, maybe we're not attracted to each other anymore. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong with me. That slow burn... That slow burn is, is a beautiful thing. <laughs> right, because it can, you know, as much as we talk about reversible consent and saying you're into something and then saying, never mind, I'm not into it and that being totally acceptable. The other can also happen where you're like, eh, I'm not really in the mood, but you snuggle and you cuddle and your, your walls come down a little bit. And you're like, actually, yeah, I am in the mood now right. because we took the time and I was able to release the break. And, and, you know, this is true across sexual orientations, across genders. And mm -hmm. I think I think in some ways the myth of spontaneous desire is even harder for men in the society because they're always supposed to be turned on, right? Right. And so we're talking to the men out there too that it's okay for you to say, let's take it slow. I had a rough day. You know, the boss was a jerk or <laughs> I had a deadline that was really stressful. It's okay for all of us to say or I'm tired it's or I'm stressed yeah. or <laughs> anything at all. Anything. Um, and that's for any gender. That's not just for men and women. That's for every person is entitled to have breaks. Exactly. I only refer to men because the culture tells men that they're supposed to be ready on. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. that's that kind of leads to the second part of this myth, though, which is that physical sexual responses indicate readiness or willingness or desire necessarily. Because on the one hand, we don't want people to think that just because you don't, you know, you don't appear as turned on, whether that's an erection or whether that's getting wet or whatever it is, that you're not interested in sex. But also on the other hand, there can be physical arousal without actually wanting to have sex. Yeah. Yeah. There's some um, fascinating, fascinating research on that, actually. Um, it's, a, it's called in the literature arousal non-concordance. So that's when you're 
you know, genital behavior doesn't necessarily predict your subjective experience of actually liking or wanting or desiring. Exactly. And so what they what they did is they actually took people in the lab and they measured their what they do is they measure the blood flow to the genitalia and they also do brain scans at the same time and they show participants sexual stimuli, erotic, erotic images intended to uh, bring on arousal and desire. And what they have found in this research, when they're looking at the brain at the same time they are looking at what's happening in the genitals, is oftentimes they don't match, mm-hmm. which means in simple terms, your body might be, if, you're, if you have a penis owner, you might be hard. <laughs> you're, if you're a woman, you might have all of the owner, all of owner, all of those, all of that blood flow, but your brain is not firing. So this- and just the opposite. Oftentimes, and this is this is the part that's huge, and it's important for all of us to understand. Your brain might be firing arousal, excitement, desire. But your body might not be firing yet, and that's okay. So we mentioned um, Emily Nagoski earlier, and Emily Nagoski is a sex educator who has done a series of TED Talks about sexual relationships and um, sexual arousal. And one of the topics she talks about is this arousal non-concordance. And there's a really funny example she gives when she's talking about um, someone that she was explaining this arousal non-concordance to. And they basically said, oh, gosh, this makes so much sense because I you know, still remember this time when I was in eighth grade and someone said the word donut hole and I got an erection. And I <laughs> <laughs> you know, middle schooler, how embarrassing, right? But the point that this person was making was like, well, obviously, I, I wasn't sexually attracted donut. to a donut hole, but you know, I, I had an erection, and people were like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? <laughs> so, but the point, you know, again, like this is what we're talking about, is that there isn't, it doesn't necessarily translate. You know, your physical expression or the of of attraction doesn't necessarily correlate to your actual desire, and vice versa. You could have all the desire and the wanting and the liking in the world, but still not get an erection or still not get wet or whatever. And so that's what we're saying here is that this myth is that, you know, physical sexual response doesn't necessarily indicate one way or the other. Exactly. And the thing too, um, you know, sadly, it has happened in the area of like sexual assault that if a woman is wet or has an orgasm, even though she's been sexually assaulted, it somehow means that she wanted it and shows that she actually did con- give consent. And Well, and it happens with men too. I mean, there's a lot of stories with, you know, with men or, or with people who have a penis of, well, they got hard. So, right. you know, and right. they got hard because you touched them. They didn't get hard because they wanted it. Right. And as a physical reaction doesn't mm-hmm. match the mental or emotional reaction. And particularly though, in, in issues of women and sexual assault, there's a lot of evolutionary thoughts that women get wet and have orgasm to protect themselves, to right. protect from being much more physically harmed by, you know, lack of a better word, for penetration, for violent penetration. So right. all that aside, um, one of the things that, that we really want to stress is that um, even though you've been taught and we've been taught in our culture that some type of physical arousal, and, and it is a lot for people with penises, that you have to be ready and you have to be going and you have to be on. Clearly, it's a myth, both scientifically, emotionally. There's research that shows that you shouldn't stress out about that anymore. So let's just put that part. And I know we say put to bed at the end of the episode, but I want to put it to bed right now. Don't 
look at your partner's physical reaction. If your partner tells you they want you, they desire you, and you're attracted to, they're attracted to you, please believe them. <laughs> well, and Emily Nagosti, again, has this great quote that is worth repeating where she says, my genitals do not tell you what I want or like I do. Yeah. Um, we are communicative sexual beings who deserve to express what we want when we want it. And what we don't want when we don't, and our bodies can help us get there. But ultimately, sex positive agency means communicating desire and needs um, for yourself and with your partners. So, you know, use your words. Use your words. <laughs> use your words and listen to the words of your partner and trust them because it's not it's not fair to think that just for that physical response only is the only indicator of sexual desire and sexual want. And if your partner says, yes, I want you, then they want you. Well, and, and you know, that's the other side of what the culture does to, especially to women. Like if you're, if your partner, your man partner in this case, because a lot of the research, once again, and a lot of the culture does have to do with heterosexual relationships if you if if the guy you're with isn't hard, you're like, oh my god, oh my god, there's something wrong with me. I'm not desirable. I'm not attractive. Um, I don't know. Is there corollary in same sex relationships that you know of, Jen? I mean, in my personal experience, I think I don't want to say that women are more perceptive or more intuitive, but that's sort of what my experience has been. Is it's more like I can tell when you're not into it because I think in my you know relationships with other women it's been very much like we are so communicative that if it's not if you don't want it it's clear because it's like mm -hmm. we're not talking or you seem distant or you seem um you know like you're disengaged so that's been my experience i can't obviously speak for all queer relationships by any stretch of the imagination but my experience has been that i think because and we kind of talked about this on a previous episode that women or at least queer women or lesbian relationships tend to say tend to be more you know, emotionally connected mm -hmm. and sometimes need yeah. that physical connection. For me, I've never had the experience of like, oh, you're not physically interested. It's more been like before we even get to that part, I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, emotionally, I feel like you're not here. So I think with with me, with my experience, it's been that the emotional breaks are a lot more clear than the physical breaks are. Mm, that's really that's smart. And I think that's smart for mixed sex relationships and heterosexual relationships to hear that message, because I think there is a cultural expectation around spontaneous desire is physical desire. And without that, you don't have desire. So I think that we're going to go back to what you said before. Use your words. <laughs> listen to the words of others because someone tells you that they want you. They do. And you know what? If someone takes a while to tell you that, that's okay. Yeah. Take your time. Take your time. Take your time, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to reiterate too, like, you know, we try to tie together the themes from all these different episodes that we've done because it's all part of the sexual experience. So, you know, debunking this myth of spontaneous desire, debunking this myth of always being turned on or needing to be turned on, you know, like a like that, snap. Um, this ties back to sex positivity. This ties back to affirmative consent. This ties back to asking for what you want. And all of these things lead to a healthier and more fulfilling relationship with sex, with your body, with your partner, with your partners. So there you have it. Another myth. Put, Put to, to bed. bed. Go to sleep, myth. We're done with you. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sex Ed Debunked. Um, as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or another myth you'd like to hear us debunk, reach out to us um, across social media at Sex Ed Debunked or shoot us an email at sexeddebunked at gmail.com. Have a great day. Thanks, y'all. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Sex Ed Debunked. During the course of our podcast, we have limited time together, which means that unfortunately, many identities, groups, and movements may not be represented each week. The field of sexuality and gender orientations, identities, and behaviors are changing and growing rapidly, and we remain committed to being as inclusive as possible. Please remember that all of us, including us, are learning in this area and may occasionally slip up. We ask that we all continue to be kind to one another so that we can create a truly inclusive and accepting environment. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us at Sex Ed Debunked on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Sex Ed Debunked is produced by Trailblaze Media along with myself, Shannon Curley, and Christine Curley. From Trailblaze Media, our engineering is handled by Ezra Winters.